<clears throat> Hi, welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to go and sort Pep Guardiola. Now I think it's important before you know we before I start is that you cannot deny that he's had a hugely important role in 21st century football management and the way how the game has developed. He is a key figure in that one. You know, with Tiki Taka, the success of Barcelona to an extent, Spain, <clears throat> you can't take away that level of success that he has. But one of the problems that I find with him is, is that the coverage of him is so positive, so in a way fawning, that it becomes quite difficult to actually really get into the actual nitty gritty of, you know, why is he good? What is he good at? What is he not good at? <clears throat> So this podcast is more of a sort of a critical look at, you know, Pep Guardiola and his managerial career and sort of why he is how he is now, looking back on, on his football career and the way how the, the way how he developed his football education is, is interesting and it's fascinating. So I don't want anyone to think that I'm 100% anti-Pep Guardiola. I think it's great he's in the Premier League, but I think there are some key points that I don't think people... It becomes very much an argument about if you criticise him that you're not understanding it. It's a slightly elitist way of looking at it, is that he is such a genius and the football is so high level that you, the average fan who's sitting there criticising him, aren't getting it. And if only you just understand it, then everything would become clear. And I think that that is just... You have to ignore so many caveats into his managerial career to get to that point of unquestioningness. In other words, he has so many advantages over his whole career. He really is a football manager of the 1%. You know, he is you know, elements of Steve Jobs. He's elements of a walking TED talk. He, he's, he is the football manager of the 21st century because he looks... His way of doing things is very much a sign of the times. It is a 1% that have this power and the ability to do really what they want and shape how they want. So now there are great things that come from that. You get the iPhone, you get the iPad, the iPod, all of these amazing inventions. But in certain respects, all of those things were pre-existent and then someone like a Jobs came along and made it better. But it's from a different, you know, an element of power that just the average person won't you know, can't really subscribe to it's a world in which there is a glass ceiling and no matter what you do you hit up against it so if you if you look at his the start of his career he, he basically is at barcelona he's at la misa the football academy which at this point has been reorganized and reimagined by johan cruyff on this wonderful line it's a brilliant football education not only does he get the, the fundamentals and there's a culture of success. You know, he, he works with Johan Cruyff. He works with a lot of the talented youth coaches. He ends up, you know, he plays under Bobby Robson, Louis van Gaal. Jose Mourinho l learns a lot of his football at this point. And he's friends with Pep Guardiola. Of course, obviously, now they are somewhat enemies. But that's the thing. He, he's surrounded. I mean, the, the team is very successful. You know, all of the, a lot of the players of his era all went on to have really good careers in management, in Coman, Philip Cocu, Laurent Blanc, a few others. So he's in this perfect place, you know, for which 
no, there's no other way of, of replicating that. If you think, has a, has a great manager ever had so many advantages? He's a great player. He's a leader. You know, he's a native of Catalonia, so the fans love him. You know, the, he's... He plays that sort of very. He plays that sort of midfield role, where he's got a lot of responsibility defensively and sort of starting attacks and all the rest of it, and he's he makes the most of his his ability. He's not maybe the most physically gifted player. He's not the quickest. He doesn't score many goals, but he's still a fantastic player. So in other words, he has made the most out of it. But he comes from you know it's something that nobody else can really replicate. I I when I'm thinking about it, it's like well. Ferguson, it's like, well, no, he, you know, Ferguson's best success as a player, you know, when he goes to his boyhood team, Rangers, but it doesn't work out. He leaves under a cloud. He hasn't had the success that he wanted. His career then peters out in the lower parts of the Scottish League. Probably the only person I could think of at the top of my head that would come close to it was Dan Gleish, in the sense that he plays under a great manager at Celtic, joins Liverpool, has this fundamental, wonderful career, and then takes over as player manager. But even that doesn't quite... He's not quite surrounded by as many. You know, they're, they're great managers in you know, Shankly and Fagan and Bob Paisley. But yeah, even the, the players around him, not that many of them became great managers in of their own right. You say soonest, but a lot of his success was Scotland... Turkey, you know, he only had limited sort of success in at Liverpool, Newcastle, Blackburn. You know, he, he became, he's a decent manager, but nothing amazing. Joe John Barnes doesn't have that, and so in the end, you almost get to the point where, and that Dalglish has difficulties. He, in other words, he has to basically be player manager. So in other words, he has to really learn on the job. Where if you then look into Pep Guardiola, his ascent to managerial, you know, was a lot hard, was a lot easier. So it was a lot slower. It was a lot more plotted, and the 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 advantages that Pep Guardiola has by being a modern manager is that you know you've got the sports science. You've got a huge squad. You've got more inequality from the team at the top to the team at the bottom, and so in a way, one of the key points is that there isn't as much struggle when his rise to the top, whereby Dalglish has this pressure when he's manager to, from being one of the boys to managing it, and you know the people he's got to get rid of are in fact people he's played years for. He has this enormous pressure to keep up the level of success, the success that the previous managers have created, in, in a sense that he's taken on the job knowing that a lot of the advantages that Liverpool had are slowly but surely decreasing as the 80s wears on. In other words, he's he think of it almost like the Roman Empire. He's getting the Roman Empire when things are starting to slowly but surely crumble at the sides. And he still does a fantastic job. And eventually, just the, the, the sheer amount of things that happen. So you, you have Heysel, you have Hillsborough, you have the ban from Europe. All of which, and just the fact that he'd had this virtually no gaps. He goes from player to player manager to pretty much just manager. Under just tremendous pressure. And eventually, he ends up pretty much just, he, he can't take it any law. And sort of quits very un, well, very unexpectedly. Well, you, there are some parallels with Pep Guardiola, but 
he's not under anywhere near the same sort of level of pressure of outside forces. In other words, he just has a great team at Barcelona. And yet Barcelona job is a very stressful job and all the rest of it. But he's in the best position to be successful because he is native, native Catalonian. He has had the great career as a player, leader. He's got the support of Johan Cruyff. He's got all the bits and pieces that he needs to be successful. Where if you literally compare it to, let's say, someone like look at AVB and Mourinho, they're slightly different. In other words, they're people that have come in right from the bottom. In other words, AVB is famous for basically when he's about thirteen. He he lives near in the apartments near to Bobby Robson. So what he does is at thirteen he comes up with a sort of tactical dossier slips it under Robson's door so Robson reads it and that sort of starts him on the thing but he starts at the lowest level he's not had a you know a managerial he's not had a football career and he has to really work his way up and prove that he has the ability to become a manager starts off quite low in the Portuguese league works his way up to Porto and then he goes from there but even then probably what would you say is his sort of most important job so far well, it's the Chelsea job, but he gets that off the basis of the Europa League success with Porto winning the league. He's a boy wonder, but he's off. He's still off of the Mourinho coaching tree. He's still, you know, there's elements of you know, Bobby Robson as a sort of mentor. So even then, he's had a fairly lucky chance. In other words, most thirteen-year-olds don't get a world-class manager taking you under his wing to an extent. You then don't have. You know, his translator then becoming a great manager and you being on his stuff. He, even he's had some, you know, 1% exa- advantages that, you know, your average kid doesn't have. <laughs> but even he ends up, he gets the Chelsea job, but within a few months he's chucked out and then he's gone to Spurs, which is, you know, a slight step down. It's still a great opportunity, but it's a step down. And then it doesn't work out. And now he's, you know, <laughs> gone to Russia gone to China so he's never they're, they're basically he's never managed to crack a top top team he's never had the power to do much in other words he, he's at Chelsea the expectations are huge and he's kind of given two different things he's told be successful right now get the average age of the squad under control and play really great football and basically he's you know what do you do do you get rid of all of the you know phase out you know, the Lampards, the Terrys, the Drogbots. Then somehow keep up that level of success while getting the squad younger and keeping, you know, it, it's an impossible job. He, he's not really prepared for it. He's too young. And is at cross purposes because basically he still needs the Drogbots, the Lampards, the Terrys because they're a huge part of what Chelsea is and their success. But they're not the future. In other words, they're not going to be able to play a sort of highfalutin, very sort of tactical, very fast, very high line. So in the end, it, it becomes a mess. In other words, the success that they had demanded at the time, is you can't keep it up. And in the end, he gets sacked. They bring in Di Matteo, who basically has the advantage of saying to them, look, this is your last crack at trying to win the Champions League because it's all falling apart. Eventually, you know, you're going to be retired, leaving. You're not the future of Chelsea. So as a result, the, the focus of the club becomes very narrow. In other words, everyone is behind it. Because the only way that he keep, Di Matteo keeps the job is if he wins the Champions League. And then you look at Bar- if you look at Mourinho. You know, there's this whole, I think, narrative that says that 
he's always wanted to manage Barcelona, and the second he gets sort of turned down for the job, that you know it, he never kind of gets over it. There's probably a grain of truth. I'm sure he would love to have managed Barcelona because they're an important part of his, you know, rise. You know, from translator to assistant, and then leaving to become manager and having all of this success. And sort of, there's an element of a homecoming to it. But even he doesn't get the job. He's not considered, despite the fact that he's had all of this success, you know, in England, in Portugal, in Italy, and he can't get there. And that shows you just how high up, you know, it doesn't matter even if you've won stuff, you've got history with Boston, you could still be turned down. And if you then, then, then look at it to someone like Allardyce, who's basically had a limited playing career, you know, he's had a good success at Blackpool to start his career and then just gets fired for a really atrociously bad reason. And it's unfair. And then he has to almost sort of go back and then manage an island for a bit. And it's sort of semi-pro. And it's just something that Guardiola Nibali has to deal with that kind of pressure or those kind of issues. In other words, you know, when he joins Barcelona, it's as B-team manager. But he hasn't had virtually no coaching experience. But... He's given this sort of preferential treatment. He's given the job. And he's got all of these amazing, brilliant players, which then helps him get to, you know, get the job when Rijkaard leaves. But I'm gonna take a, a sort of step back and really look at his sort of so he he basically has this run as you know, captain, plays in this great Barcelona team, wins stuff. And then he's his career Kind of, it's an interesting one. He sort of he leaves Barcelona when he's you know just slow, slowly starting to decline. The club's going through a lot of different things with kind of you know like you know Louis Van Gaal and the, the end of that one where they had all these Dutch players and they sort of there were elements of Cruyff still there and there was, but it was a bit messy. They were spending quite a large amount of money. And there just there always seemed to be some kind of recurring crisis, and this is at the time when Real are hoovering up European Championships with the Galacticos, and so he goes to Brescia. So they're a small established, small but established club in Italy, but they're already sort of established because that's where Baggio goes to reinvent his career, and there's a few other sort of older players there. So. <sighs> It's not a huge challenge. There's not any real pressure. They, they, they want to stay up, but if they go down, it's not big news. It's not that important. And really, at that point, you know, Serie A is still really high up there you know, in comparison with La Liga and the rest of it. So it's not a huge amount of difference, really. It, it's not... You know, he doesn't go to the MLS. He doesn't try and you know, push on American... You know, soccer. He doesn't try to build the MLS. He doesn't go to, let's say, the you know Scottish Premier League. And maybe goes to a Celtic or a Rangers for just for the experience and to try and get them to win something. He doesn't go to a Premier League club. You know, he's not really fighting for Europe, and he's not really fighting relegation against all the odds or promotion from, let's say, a lower league. He's not trying to then establish them in in the top division. He doesn't do like a, what Bolton, you know, with Campo and Hierro, who not only go there and help save the club from relegation, they push them up into Europe. And there's really then it sort of asks yourself, well, did he learn much from the post-Barcelona thing? Because after he leaves Brescia, he goes to Qatar, and that's, that's money. <laughs> you know, and it's interesting that 
it had a quite a large influence on him because you know when it, when he's coaching Bayern, he goes there every single uh, when they have their winter break. He goes to Qatar with the entire Bayern team, and he's very positive about the World Cup, and he's he's uncritical of the politics of it, which is it's interesting because really you've got. It's, it's a human rights catastrophe. Thousands of people have died. You know, they, you know, it's you know, slavery with extra steps. And yet, if you compare him to some, some of the other great sort of managers, even, you know, sort of Clough, Dalglish and sort of Ferguson, even those sort of managers, you know, they have a sort of a moral compass. And, you know, they, would, they were willing to speak out on some issues. And they weren't, they weren't all perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But in general, you know, they tended to do the right thing and stand up to authority when things weren't 100% right. You know, Ferguson always has an element of sort of socialism about him, which, which means that it's a, lot, it's a lot easier to forgive some of his, you know, myopia to an extent and some of the things that he comes out with because at heart he's someone who sort of has you can see believes in right and wrong in a political sense if it's man united he's always going to focus on man united and man united right or wrong which you can understand but and it's it's interesting because you just want to sit there and say well for someone who's had so much praise. There doesn't seem to be a lot of questions about his sort of politics or, you know, how he sees the world. It seems to be quite. It seems to be quite opaque. It it seems to be that you you can just. I think there's a lot more focus on his style and the football and all of the planning, but there doesn't seem to be an overarching philosophy to that. Whereby there is, if you look at Johan Cruyff. You know, the, to an extent, Renus Michaels. Uh, there's, you know, the Hungarian team of the fifties, or even the Real Madrid team of the nineteen, the early fifties, late early mid fifties. There's something there. There's some kind, of, and you know, the history of Barcelona to an extent as a way of Catalan nationalism coming through against like the Franco dictatorship. But you you never really get that with. He's almost a bit post-political, which I think comes back to sort of the the 1% thing. In other words, he's living in such a sort of rarefied world that actually the the politics doesn't really affect him because he, he never seems to actually, he's never at the, he's never at the ground level. So in other words, he's never had to really struggle in terms of managing a club with no money or the chairman is megalomaniac or you know is intrusive <laughs> you know the, the 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 lowest he gets is barcelona b but that's barcelona who are one of the world's biggest football clubs who have hoovered up all the young talent and he's got that talent and the he's being groomed for the job in respects the top job so in other words it's not a struggle it's just basically he's learning and he's got these players and you can just see where the narrative is going. You can see he's going to take some of these young players because you can see the team that Rijkaard gets, who wins the 2005 European Cup. They're some of them are older players who are likely, you know, who who are basically not the future or the medium term. 
So in other words, these players that he's got at Barcelona B are the future, and he therefore becomes future as a part of it, something that he's actually admitted. So, well, look, I wouldn't be anywhere near where I am now if it wasn't for Messi. So it's not the same thing as if you're managing a team that's just going down from Division 3 to the conference, where if you go down, people's jobs are lost. The club may fold. It's not that kind of do-or-die issues. You know, he then has this sort of gap year out in Mexico after he leaves Qatar, where he's not really playing very much. It's kind of a low mid-table outfit, so there's no real pressure on him. You know, he's been out of the mainstream of football for quite a few years since he's left, really left Barcelona. So, but he's doing some elements of coaching, he's learning, but it's he's not really got an official role. He's not. So as a result, it's interesting that he basically, without much coaching experience gets this Barcelona B job you know would some would another player basically have who spent years out in the lower so lower mid table in Serie A Qatar football league which was even, you know even worse state than it is in terms of in terms of the level of football when he was there it's a bit better now but even then it's still poor and then played in the lower parts of the league MX I don't think so. I mean, that's the thing. In other words, he gets credit for this sort of gap year in Mexico in the press, as the way how he's learned and all the rest of it. Whereby a less well-heralded person would be like, well, we just think you went out to Mexico because that's the only place where you could actually get a contract and play at, you know, in your late 30s. So in the end, it just becomes, oh, well, you've had a bit of a, you know, a bit of a journeyman end to your career. You've gone around, you've picked up some money, but, you know, what are you really going to learn from Qatar what did you really learn from the lower parts of the Mexican league? Frankly, what did you much, much did you learn from Brescia? And that's interesting because I think in the end it it shows in in the decisions he makes in terms of where he goes next in his career. In other words, his career, no matter how on paper. So if you just focus on wins, losses, trophies, it's formidable. Wherever he goes, there's wins, where, you know, and he's up there. But then you, you can't, if you just look at it like that, then you forget all of the, the context. There's just so many caveats. You know, if you look at it, Rijkaard wins the Champions League. They've still got some great core of players. And they've got the, uh, just an unheraldedly fantastic selection of domestic and foreign youth players who have all been schooled in La Misa. And he gets, so he gets the best of both worlds. He has the experience and he has the youth. Huge amounts of money. I mean, the underlying issues from what, what Pep Guardiola walks into is that you, he walks slap bang into the rise of Spain at international level. I mean, obviously some of the players are Madrid, a lot of them Barcelona, and the rise of the money in the super clubs. I mean, really, the 2005 Champions League final is fascinating because it's Porto versus Monaco. So it's the French League against the Portuguese League. It's the last one where, basically, the big clubs after that all sorted themselves out and the money then exploded. So, in other words, Real Madrid sorted themselves out, you know, after their sort of post-Galacticos kind of funk. Barcelona then become seriously dominant. You've then got Chelsea, 
Man United come again. You've got Bayern, who then really start kicking on because of, you know it. To, they're the one team that come out of Germany from their economic crisis with the fall of the media company, the Curse Group. They're the ones that have managed to keep as much of the power, and they've got the money, and a whole generation of German teams just can't really compete with Bayern. In other words, the closest that get there are Dortmund. But what happens to Dortmund? All of their best players get sold to Bayern. And so as a result, he's got all of all the benefits. So in other words, he's now managing a super club with who are based in the country where the talent has come. In other words, it would have been no more different than, let's say, the sort of young French players of the late 90s, early 2000s, if they'd all been based in Paris Saint-Germain or Monaco, and then you were managing one of those teams as the French national team went on that run when they won in 98, 2000, similar sort of thing. But Spain is a real football powerhouse whereby France isn't. <laughs> That's why most of the, you know, those young, brilliant, talented French players are all dotted around the Premier League, La Liga, Serie A. And so if you look at it, but the, the interesting thing to note is they still, all of those managers, so you've got Rijkaard, Tito Villanova, Gerard Martino, and Lewis Hamilton, they all win to certain degrees. So in other words, you know, Frank Rijkaard does the, gets them over the hill, you know, in terms of winning something big, European. But... His players are ageing. In other words, one of the, that team sort of built around a lot of Ronaldinho and to, you know, Rivaldo to an extent. But there, you know, Ronaldinho is starting the slow descent, slow decline phase of his career. He's not someone that you can rely on for four or five years. You know, the people's, you know, Larson, for example, you know, not going to be there forever. <laughs> but then if you look at, you know, Tito Villanova, obviously, who tragic situation there and Martino, they're the ones who have to deal with the post-Pep issues. In other words, when he leaves, the problem is is that, you know, the sort of tiki-taka has almost gone a bit too far. These football philosophies always sort of end up eating each other, eating itself almost. Because what you have is, is that if you take it to the absolute nth degree, it will always end up in, it will just go too far. In other words, if his dream of, oh, I would love it if I had 11 midfield players... Well, 11 midfield players, they'd all pass the ball, they'd all do the bits and pieces, but they wouldn't be an effective outfit. In other words, it becomes too loose. In other words, you end up having a someone like, let's say, Alex Song. They signed him from Arsenal. He's a good to sort of defensive midfielder. He's got some... You, know, you can see why they bought him. He's got... You know, he's been schooled under sort of the Wenger philosophy, so he can play with the ball. He can go forward a little bit, but he's still got all of the physical sort of box-to-box strength. And yet he ends up as a centre-half. And he's just not a centre-half. You, you wouldn't... And then you end up with a situation where there's just... It loses its shape a bit. In other words, when Pep's there, everyone is at their peak. And so the football they can play is so fantastic. But when you reach that apex, either you know, it will decline because it has to at some level. 
or what you'll do is you'll end up chasing it. You'll end up saying, well, okay, we're, we're winning with two centre-halves. If we actually got a better ball player there, we'd be able to keep the ball longer and then we'd have more control and then we'd be able to get the ball forward quicker and all the bits and pieces. But then in the end, what happens is your defence isn't very good, which means that in something like a Champions League quarter-final, you can be beaten. <laughs> you, you can lose to that sort of sucker-punch goal which they do, you know, to an extent against Inter and Chelsea. And the fallout from losing Pep is a huge sort of thing. So, and the problem is, is that because they are the post-Pep managers, they're trying to keep up what, you know, the philosophy, which means that by the time Luis Enrique gets the job, it's looking creaky because Xavi's getting older, Iniesta's getting older, you know. Messi's in that stage where it's like, well, will he stay for the rest of his career there, or has he just had enough? Because he's, you know, there are issues. You've got the tax issues. You've got, you know, does he just want a, a fresh start in it, you know, and try somewhere else where it's not the goldfish bowl of Barcelona? And what he has to do is he's the first manager that can actually change things. So in other words, he's got Neymar, he's got Suarez, and he just rejigs it. And then he wins a treble. So in other words, you know, of course Pep's results are the best because he's got the best situation, the best combination. But even then, even the lesser manager in Luis Enrique still you know, wins a treble, still plays spectacularly good football, scores a lot of goals. And he's got a slightly more degraded squad. He's working with slightly less. Even if you look at the three talented players, they're still... You know, you've still got Mascarano sort of awkwardly sort of playing as a, a centre-half, but he's not really a true centre-half. You've got the issue with the goalkeepers, because Valdez has moved on, and, you know, Ter Sturgeon is a decent keeper, but he's young and a little bit green, and we've seen, you know, Claudio Bravo. He's, you know, not had, you know, he's not the most highly ranked goalkeeper ever. You know, he's having to get people like Rakitic and, and get them playing as part of the philosophy. He's got you know, the fag end of Danny Alves and he's having to then deal with that. <laughs> which none of which Pep really has to deal with. He doesn't really have to deal with ageing players as much. And, you know, In the end he uses Henri but Henri at this point isn't the key part because Messi becomes the key part. He doesn't ever have you know the, the worst scenario maybe I guess is that Poyol was ageing but he's still a, you know, a figure, an important figure. It's only when Pep leaves that then you kind of get the end and having to try and replace him. Which I think then leads on to if you then he then you know he has this year out in New York, which is interesting because again it's I'm, I'm I struggle to see what you know he's kind of learned. There's all talk about well he speaks to all these different people outside of football for and, and he's obviously a very bright guy but you know he and he comes to Bayern and he he's more mature he's he's got more he, he's got slightly more interesting ideas philosophically philosophically speaking for the football that he wants to play but at the same time that that's a natural progression because you know he was relatively inexperienced at Barcelona you know, and you have to give him credit for organising it. He still is, in many ways. He's got, he has managerial talent, but lots of people would have 
managerial talent if you have given him the bountiful resources that he's had. So we're, we're buying it. becomes more an aesthetic and philosophical challenge than it is one about winning trophies. In other words, it's really, can I make this super team play better football? And if you're going to grade it, he does. But again, it always comes down to the caveat. In other words, he's in a league where they just have a better squad than virtually everyone. You know, they degrade the nearest rival in Dortmund. They've, you know, the scale of Bayern in terms of support throughout Germany. You know, the fact that German football likes having the best German players at Bayern to an extent Dortmund. As a way how, you know, of... As an ideology. And he has the unlimited budget. And by now, I mean, part of the, the reason of his success, it's, it's a self-perpetuating cycle. In other words, he only really works with the best players. So as a result, the best players always want to work with him. So in other words, he can handpick the players that he wants. There never seems to be much in the way of counterbalances. There, there's no one telling him no. I mean, the closest thing you can get is he has a few arguments with the um, Bayern medical department. But in the end, the doctor's been there for, you know, 30, 40 years. He leaves. In the end, and literally, he's, wherever he has gone, he's been, whatever he's asked for is usually given to him. You know, so in other words, all three of the clubs that he's managed have had very expensive, very good youth systems. They've all had big stadiums that have been you know, built, newly built or renovated. <laughs> they all have pre-existing fan bases and history and elements of power. I mean, Mazzi to a lesser degree, but still, it's been pretty much 10 years since the takeover. So they've had lots of years to, to really go through all the struggles of going moving up from mid-table to competing for the top four, then winning trophies, and then the last year before... They've got to the Champions League semi, so that there's more than enough to, to be getting on with. But that's it. He won't manage without those prerequisites. In to an extent, in in some ways, he's not really looking for a challenge. In a, it's it's almost reminiscent of the end of his career. You know, it's he just wants to go there, and get the players that he wants and needs, and then input his f football philosophy. And the less that he has to deal with in terms of building the club, the better. In other words, he, he wants all the infrastructure there. He wants the money. He wants the Champions League football. He wants everything, in effect, already there. In other words, he you know look at why he ends up at Man City. There are more interesting jobs. The Arsenal job is a much more interesting job. The style of football they play is quite clearly suited to what he wants to do. They've got the stadium. Their youth system, it needs a bit of work. But this is the, where the issue comes down to it. Because when he turns up at Bayern, he's like, well, I've signed this three-year contract. And he, well, he never really looks that interested in staying there past the three years. Whereby somebody else, a, a different sort of manager, having had the, sort of the, the, the failures he has in the, the semi-finals of the Champions League, you think maybe he's sitting there and go. Actually, I'll sign one more contract because I want one last crack at this. 
But really, by the end of his time at Bayern Munich, he's had enough. You know, it doesn't seem to bother him that much that they've actually not been able to give... You know, it's, you can't criticise a, a team for getting to the, for losing in the Champions League semi-finals. It's the, you know, pretty much the highest level in club world football. You, whoever you're playing is going to be either very, very good or at least on a run of form that, you know, they're playing out of their skins. So, there's no shame in it. But the problem is, is that there's one article I remember reading about Guardiola when he was at Bayern. And they were saying about all the, about 11 different formations that he'd used in a league game. All sort of very exotic formations. And they'd all won all of those games. And so you're thinking, well, he's got all of those... You know, if you've got 11 formations that you can use and you've had success with, how that should make you really dominant in Europe, especially with the talent, the experience, and the, the, just the spine of that team. And yet, when, when they signed Guardiola, I'm sure the idea that they were thinking was not only would they play slightly better football and maybe more slightly more high-end than under Zip Heinz, I'm sure they were also thinking that that would then mean that they would sort of win multiple Champions League, or at least get to the final and be super competitive and really sort of match the Beckenbauer teams of the, the 70s that won the European Cup year after year. And probably the one, one example of what they feel is the advantage would be is that he's managed Messi, he's managed Barcelona. You know, he's come up against... Yeah, Real Madrid so many times in his playing career, in his managerial career. You know, he would have played you know, against Simeone. He would have you know, he was teammates with Luis Enrique. In other words, all of these kind of he should know Spanish football back to front. So in other words, and who were the successful teams in Europe at that time? The main rivals to Bayern. It wasn't the Italian teams. Juventus are still a couple of years away from really getting back to grips with European football. You know, it's Paris Saint-Germain are still a bit behind. They're still, you know, new money who are trying to, you know, get to that level, but they don't have the history of it. You know, the English teams aren't as strong as they were in the sort of mid to late 2000s. The main, real main threat is Barca, Real, and then Atletico coming up. And yet they play them... All of those teams, and in none of those games were they really that close. They were fundamentally outplayed three times in a row. He, I could sort of understand if he'd lost to a Premier League team where he hadn't faced them much, and you know it was just a style of football that he wasn't really that experienced facing. But it's three teams where he should know what to do, or they should at least be competing because they've had, you know, he's had years to work with this. To get the formations right. Because he knows that, that the season... They're going to win the league. Pretty much no matter what. So these knockout games... Are the season. And yet... They just don't really turn up. And it seems in certain respects... It's almost... You know, when he comes up against Barca... It's, it's fascinating because he sort of just sits there and goes... Well, I don't really know how to stop Messi. And it's an honest truth and there's an accuracy in that but it's really missing the point it's like well if you are this high-end football genius with a really great team you should at least have some form of plan and he doesn't seem to 
have it. You know, the, the, the tactical adjustments he makes against Real Madrid are just disastrous. So, you know, that's one sort of pencil mark into against his name in, in the record book because not only had they not you know, given Real Madrid a game, he's actively made it worse. And then he's sort of come up against Barcelona. And they're a great Barcelona team. There's no shame in losing to Madrid. There's no real shame in losing to Barcelona. But there is something about not giving them a game that is actually a bit embarrassing and not particularly having a plan and not seemingly having a sort of a plan B to maybe not shut him down entirely, but to at least negate it so that it, you know, you're going into the last 25 minutes maybe one or two goals down, so that you can then have the, the sort of grandstand finish. But he doesn't seem to want to really win ugly. And that's a fascinating thing, because it counts down to the, the Monaco game this season, where they, they won 5-3 in, in the first leg. And they're well, they're well in there for an opportunity to get to the to get to the next round, to get to the quarterfinals, where there's a possibility that you might play Sevilla. Or Leicester. I mean, luck of the draw, you might get you know, a Barca or Real. But there's there's still a few teams in there, even the Juventus, that you would possibly fancy Man City to at least have a competitive game against. A possibility of a, of a semi-final. But it's instructive. At this point, he's you know decided that this Man City team isn't really the team that he wants. He's unhappy with a lot of the players he he basically wants to clear out so the way how he deals with it is basically to say we can't possibly defend this 5-3 we have to go out there and attack and score because if we don't we're out and it's it's just a, a sort of strange thing because really he just played into Monaco's hands Monaco are a young really talented really fast really pacey team who are used to, in the French League, they've scored a, a ton of goals. They play well up to this point. But they haven't really faced a, a top challenge. You know, they, Bayer Leverkusen have had a pretty poor year in the Bundesliga. They did all right in the Champions League. And it was one of those classic ones where the team aren't doing well in the league. And as a result, the European performances step up because that, that was their last real great hope of salvaging the season and getting and you know giving Atletico a decent game in the knockout stages was probably the highlight of their season. You know, Tottenham at that point were just a little bit vulnerable and they lost. Knocked them out. And obviously what it then leads to is you have this sort of, it's almost a coming out game. In other words, people had seen that, you know, Monaco had a good start to the season, but there was always that hint that it was League One, that it was, you're dealing with PSG, with a new manager, and without Zlatan. So there was always these kind of caveats that basically seemed to suggest maybe they're not quite, you know, they're just a collection of young players on a good run of form. And by losing 5-3 and by playing some fantastically interesting football, it really opened a lot of people's eyes. But then Guardiola just plays into their hands. They're young. They're used to having space. In other words, what would you, if you were thinking about it, if you were going to stop a young, fluid team who are down by two goals, you slow the game down. You know, you don't give them a huge amount of space. You make them have to, you know, really pick their spots. And they don't do that. They play this just ridiculously open formation. And 
it just gives you know the impetus to Monaco to outrun them and to outpower them because they're quite a big physical side as well as having all of this talent. And in the end, they're just Man City are overpowered. And yet it just seems that as if the only way he wanted that Man City team that he's got this year to win is by essentially just playing almost somewhat of a high-end version of the Kevin Keegan, just pour at them with as many attacking midfielders and strikers as possible. We're just, you know, a smattering of defenders. But even those defenders are ball-playing centre-halves. They're not people that are going to put any kind of top-level European attack in knots. Because it seems to me that, I think, it's the start, when, when they won the sort of first ten games of the season, and it just looked like he'd made that kind of instant impact... Because there was always that fear, well, it might take a year, maybe 18 months, for everyone to get, you know, Guardiola ball. And then it seemed, oh, actually, that Mancy players were, were so good and that they'd managed to, you know, grasp it pretty quickly. And he comes out with a statement saying, well, the Bundesliga is just as strong as the Premier League. I don't see why people were, you know, denigrating his success. You know, like, I think Mourinho did it best when he said that basically the, the, the bus driver could have won the title for Bayern in the times that, you know, Guardiola was there. And it's funny because in the end, the second that they, they lose a couple of games, they draw against Celtic, they lose at Spurs, and just the wheels fall off. And as the season's gone on, you can see more and more that really... It seems to me that what Guardiola wants is, is planning to do is he's not trying to outthink the Premier League. I think he's just basically trying to overwhelm the Premier League. In other words, he's thinking, if I just get so much talent... you know. So in other words, he's thinking, well, he's going to have Sane, he's going to have Gabriel, Jesus, he's going to buy about three or four attacking players, maybe a couple of defensive players... He's just trying to overwhelm the Premier League. In other words, it's if I just get the best 23 players and play the style of football that I want, that those 23 players will be able to achieve, I will win basically regardless of anything else. Which is, which is where, really, in some ways, that affects his legacy. In other words, he seems to me to be someone who you know, attracts great players rather than improving good ones. So there's plenty of enough talent, you know, different strands of talent. So in other words, he has all these different sort of fullbacks. He's got Zabaleta. You know, he's got Clichy, Kolarov, Sanya. In other words, he's got, they're all experienced. They've all got their certain talents. And that's why somehow, for me, that the Monaco game was, you know, instructive. He's got players who can do a, a game plan that would have limited them and would have basically held Monaco down for a bit. Maybe the first 25 minutes, half an hour, got them frustrated. Because young players don't like to overthink things. They want it pacey and quick and to just do, and basically go through them. Not around them, just go through them. And Man City allowed them to because they're not that physical team. You've got people like Silver in centre midfield. He's not going to, you know, physically stop anyone, especially if they're pacey. And they're six feet tall, which is what Monaco have in at least three or four players, especially in their midfield engine room. I always, I always see that the element of the teacher in Guardiola is, but it's, it's always I have to have the best students and I have to have an unlimited budget. Well, yeah, but then of course those 
those students are going to produce wonderful and amazing achievement. But that's not really teaching. That, you know, that's cherry picking to an extent. In other words, you know, his Bayern spell, yeah, it's an A plus for football. They do do some amazing things on a football sense. But it's a D minus for success because they're just not competitive at the highest level. In other words, it is, it's, it's interesting that basically this season under Ancelotti, they've just nowhere, they've got nowhere near to the, the quality and the style of football in the league. But the same point is, they're still miles out, you know, 13, 14, 15 points out in front. They're going to win the league regardless. But this year in Europe, they've looked a lot more dangerous. Because I think in the end what Ancelotti's realised is is that actually being under Guardiola for three years was actually quite difficult and very demanding. So he's been a lot more laissez-faire. He's understood that those players are sort of, especially some of the key players, your, your Robins, your, your Ribéry's, Lam to his own, they're two or three years older. Mm. So actually he's almost saying, look lads, win the league games. It doesn't have to be beautiful every single time. However... I am going to have you prepared for the spring, which is when you're going to play your big Champions League games, which then culminates in the 10-2 battering of Arsenal. And you're thinking, well, he's got them in, you know, and he's got less of, he has less advantages than Guadalupe. He's had less time, he hit the squad he's got is older, and yet they seem to be, they've got more of a head of steam, they seem better prepared for the top end. It doesn't mean they're going to win the Champions League, but it's just the way how Ancelotti has able to see the resource he's got. He hasn't needed to spend a huge amount of money in the transfer window. He's used a lot of the resource he's already got, and he's worked out a way that can essentially improve them in Europe while still maintaining the league and utilising it so that his player, best players are going to be fit and healthy the stretch from so I think that then leads really to sort of the, the fundamental question is like well is Guardiola the best manager of the modern sort of Champions League era I mean I have him fourth to be honest I you know I, I think Ferguson because of his just longevity in other words he's at Man United for the whole virtually the whole period he has to rebuild several times over. And each time he rebuilds, it's a different era with different expectations. He, he's successful domestically pre-Bosman. You know, he's successful when you've got player power you know, and globalisation. You know, he's successful you know, with older teams. He's successful with younger teams. Over that whole period, he's just the one constant. And he has to deal with the problem of English football when it wasn't particularly dominant in Europe. When he had to spend years battling against, you know, the Kreuz Barcelona. You had Arrigo Sacchi's AC Milan. You had the Vincente del Bosque Galacticos. He's had to fight against the Guardiola Barcelona teams. And he's able, he's the sort of forebear for English football re-establishing itself in Europe and having that sort of peak when, you know, Chelsea, Liverpool, Arsenal, Man United get into Champions League finals and win. 
and he's you know in other words if the 1919 doesn't happen does then you know the success that Chelsea have does Arsenal and Liverpool have would that have necessarily happened I, I don't think it would have happened or that success would have been as long as it was and that's Ferguson and okay if you want to then go down to your next level well it's, it's Mourinho he's won you know Champions Leagues in two different countries you know he's won in Italy in Spain in Portugal in the in England yeah he's had you know, that sort of insane home run where he hadn't lost at home for, you know, over 100 games in three different countries. You know, he's won the UEFA Cup. He's, wherever he's gone, there's been trophies. And, you know, even even the, the sort of clubs that, even when he leaves, you know, some of the the key elements that he leaves at Chelsea help, you know, explain them getting to a Champions League final, two Champions League finals. You know, there is still that uh, a Mourinho thread running through those two successes. In the same way that... And then, you know, my you know, second or third is, is Ancelotti. You know, because he has, you know, longevity at AC. You know, he wins there. He wins at Chelsea. He wins at Real. He's winning at Barcelona... Oh, sorry, at um, Bayern. He's won at PSG. So, in other words... He's a high-end manager. In other words, he's earned his way up to the top through, you know, Juventus, through AC Milan, and the you know the back end of his career has been really, to an extent, troubleshooting. In other words, he's one of the managers that you can trust with super clubs, which is something that's one of the interesting things about Pep. What he does is that he basically creates an image where he can manage at any of these super clubs. Whereby, and that's why there's only a handful of these managers who have been able to build their personal brand. So in other words, that's why you end up with a situation where, you know, Ancelotti replaces Pep. Whereby Ancelotti at one point has basically, you know, replaced... Mourinho, whereby Mourinho has replaced, you know, it's all very, they're all just jo- doing the same jobs. So in other words, Mourinho has been at Milan, while Ancelotti was at AC, Jose was at Inter. They've both been in England, both of them have managed Chelsea. Uh, they've both been in Spain, they've both managed Real Madrid. And, you know, that's that kind of thing. In other words, it's one of the, his great successes and it's in a way one of his great successes is a result of this one percent education, footballing education, that he has this unimpeachable sense that I can manage big clubs, which you can't really break into. It's it'll be interesting to see whether someone maybe like a Maurizio Pochettino who's gone through Espanyol, Southampton and Spurs, not the most exciting clubs, whether he can break into that kind of club of top managers who manage the big clubs. It's interesting. And so, in the end, I think Ancelotti's had more success and had faced greater challenges in doing so. And yet, in the end, I think what the difference is between Ferguson, Ancelotti and Mourinho is they've all had greater success in, in some and greater longevity. And But probably the one thing, even though Pep's fault, because he really... He's not stuck around anywhere long enough 
to really build something. In other words, one of the questions is, had he stayed at Barcelona, would they have struggled as much as they, relatively speaking, did under Tito Villanova and Gerardo Martino? I don't know. I, I think possibly. I, I think they would have done maybe a bit, bit better. But I still think some of the structural issues and the way how their football you know, under Tiki Taka went, I think it's inevitable there was going to be some drop-off. But I think what, what, Marina, what Guardiola will stand out for is the aesthetics. In other words, what he has birthed to football in terms of Tiki Taka and some of the influences and philosophies and ideologies about it is probably going to have a wider role in the future of football than what Mourinho, Ferguson and Ancelotti. In other words, they're just managers. They manage the resource, the players and the situation that they're given. What Guardiola has done, in certain respects, is just the aesthetics. In other words, you know a Guardiola team when you see one and what it can do and the ideas. He's birthed ideas. He's not really done brilliantly well as a manager. I think that's pretty much how how I'd like to see it. In other words, he's just given us these ideas and influences and philosophies and that that has added something to football. But to me, if you're going to say who was the best manager, he's not in, in that list. But he's probably, you know, the best idea as football as art. I personally don't see football as being art. It's, in the end, it, and this is where, in the end, in some respects, he almost stands for inequality. In other words, he doesn't seem to be particularly bothered, because as long as he's got his aesthetics, and as long as he's got the, the talented players, and they're playing the way he wants to play football, and having the success that comes from being at a big club with a big stadium, with a big budget, with a big youth team structure and all the players that he can possibly want, he doesn't seem really bothered about the, the wider role. In other words, what he gives to football is the aesthetics of Guardiola ball. In other words, he's not particularly bothered that really the upper end of the Champions League is the same big clubs fighting the same battles on a sort of yearly basis. He's not particularly that fussed that you know the World Cup is going to Russia or to Qatar. He's not really bothered that these football clubs now got so big that really is in certain respects. You know, in Spain, you've only got really three teams that could legitimately win on a regular basis. The same is got really one and a half teams in Germany. You know, it's only you know you've got one or two teams. You know, the Monaco team has done brilliantly well. Might win the league this year, but in the end. They're going to lose all of their players and have to start all over again. The same way that Dortmund have had to do that. And he, you know, and what he's doing at Man City is a similar sort of thing. And it's why, you know, I'm going to elaborate on something I said a bit earlier. He, he doesn't go to Arsenal because actually they, they can't. They, there's an element of management in there. In other words, they, he, if he was the Arsenal manager, he'd have to sort the youth system out. And that's probably going to take longer than three years. Which is why, in the end, doesn't really want to know. He knows full well that his transfer budget would be high, but it wouldn't be overwhelming. So, in other words, that he would have to keep some of the players in that Arsene Menger team because he wouldn't be able to replace them, or he'd replace them with lesser players 
and that's whether he can manage those lesser players in his demanding football philosophy that's a question mark and I don't think he wants to do that whereby he has none of those issues at Man City which means that basically all he can do is focus on the aesthetics you know, it doesn't really matter about the, the inequalities of it or the problems with modern football all he can really give you is aesthetically pleasing football which often and if you give him Messi and Young Xavi and Iniesta you know, PK and Sergio Busquets he can you know it's Michelangelo. It's beautiful, wonderful, and amazing, and it adds something. You know, when it's at Bayern, which is just probably just a st- half a step below in terms of the talent, it's how many ring, you know, rings did he run around the rest of the Bundesliga? But it doesn't do en- enough, anywhere near enough in the Champions League. And the same thing, sort of things happened at Man City. In other words, he's got a very talented squad. There's problems with it and that he should really be able to deal with, and in the end it's come to this where he's going to get rid of most of, the, most of them, keep only the best players, and replace them with another set of brilliant players. And in the end, and he's not going to stay there forever, he's not going to see it through, he's only going to see the best two or three years of that club that he, you know, that he builds, and then he's gone before anything can go really horribly wrong. Like the one other job he's ever been linked to was the the Brazil job, which is instructive. It's not necessarily England job where it's a real challenge and you'd have to work things out and you have to work with the FA structure. If he takes the Brazil job, he's just going to work with the best 23 Brazilians that he can find and get them trying to play somewhere in the cross between Tiki Taka, Barcelona and the 1970 Brazil team. And he's going to basically ask for complete control of the medical side, the organisation side of the, the, the Brazilian first team. And he's going to almost work separately from the sort of chaotic elements on political side of it in Brazil. He's not going to go there and say, actually, I'm going to try and reform the whole of it. He's just going to pick up those players, try to get them to win something, and then he'll be gone, you know, in the space of a Copa America and a World Cup. Which then means that you then have to almost split up his achievements it's his achievements as a ideologue and an aesthetic which is amazing and it's something that will last a lot longer than the sort of the football philosophy of Ancelotti Mourinho and Ferguson but then there's the flip side of it which mean that he didn't really want managerial he didn't want he wasn't looking for for challenges he was just looking to do his specific thing which is exactly the same really at Bayern and Man City as it was at Barcelona. He's just recreating the same thing wherever he goes. So in other words, he's not looking to see if he could manage an average team and get them up. He just wants to manage at that 1% level where you know he, the problems of the modern world don't really affect him. He's almost as if he manages on the 100th floor. And in other words, you know, you're... Your ordinary managers who have playing careers that don't hit the heights, who have to start at the bottom, they can never really get past maybe the 25th floor, the 50th floor, because just the world as that high-end football has become so devolved from the rest of it. And he's a symptom, and he's a cause of that. And that's really where I'm going, I'm going to leave it, is that, you know, he has birthed amazing football, and he's also... 
taken football away from the past and away from you know the elements that why you sort of love it in the first place that anyone can win that your team could you know get a great manager get some young players and really kick on because people like that he's always looking to in effect have such a level of dominance so he can do what he does that it will never really you you He's almost as if his whole philosophy is to stop someone like Leicester ever getting anywhere close to the top level of football. And yet, if we all look at it, what do we all love about last season? It was Leicester winning. And that's where I think in the end you, you have to... That he has been great for football in an artistic sense, but in terms of the idea of football and what it could be and what you want it to mean, I don't think he's had as anywhere near the level of positives as his biggest fans would like to believe. Thank you and good night.